0: Welcome to Alpine Church. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine, and so it's always a delight when when, uh, we get the call to come up and be part of Logan Campus. We're so delighted to be with you guys here today. Today, we are in our second week of our new series. We're calling it In Case You Missed It. And what we're doing in this series, we're looking at some stories from the Old Testament that are not the ones that people probably talk about the most. There, there, there might be ones that if you didn't grow up in church or in Sunday school, you might not be that aware of. And so what we want to do is kind of connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament a little bit. And, and we want to show you in this series how these particular small stories, how they add up to part of this big story in the Bible, this this common thread that runs from the beginning all the way to the end that that pulls together um, the things that God wants to do in our lives, the things that He has done for us in our lives. And so that's our goal in this series. Now, our, our hope for you is that you'll uh, become part of a small group for the next few weeks and while we're doing this series. just a test drive a small group. small group is just a group of people that meets together uh, during the week to process God's Word together, to talk about life, to, to dig into the things that we're learning on Sunday, to encourage each other, to, to help each other out, pray for each other. Because in a, it's in a small group, we're going to see today, in fact, that the story that we're looking at, there's so much going on there that we can only scratch the surface. There's so many nuances and so many interesting background issues that, that we want you to have an opportunity to go in a place where you can explore that together with other people. And and uh, that's what small groups are about. And so we're always asking you to consider that step in your life. Now, as we're looking in this series, now if you were here last week, you know that the story of the snake on the pole. There's a story that involved miraculous healing, okay and um, next week we're looking at a story where uh, a young boy hears god's voice, God is speaking to this kid and an unordinary way, I guess you could say, in a s- spectacular way. And then the following week after that, we're looking at a story that has miracles of provision and of, of healing and so and so forth going on in there. So uh, I just want to put on the table, this is my first time with you guys in this series, I just feel like I want to put on the table that um, the Bible is a book with a supernatural worldview, right? I think you understand that, and, and that's where we're coming from. But the Bible portrays this God who is active in the world, who is not just some kind of a philosophical, abstract idea out there somehow, but He's active in His creation. He's involved in the lives of human beings. And that perspective is inherent throughout the whole series because it's a perspective that's inherent in the Bible. Now, the whole reason I bring this up is because I understand this is not a given in American culture, right? That... Um, many, many Americans today believe that the only really the only real reality is what you can see or what you can measure and And so the modern mind is going to find some of the stories that we're looking at in this series to be unbelievable. Maybe you're to stretch the stretch belief at least a little bit. <clears throat> but the temptation is we can all be really culturally myopic and and I think there's an assumption that our worldview is the superior worldview, and that, that the modern view is really the epitome, the, the peak of human um, understanding, and so that we have, we feel like we have nothing to learn from any other kind of worldview that, that's been prevalent in other parts of the country or the world around throughout history, and so I, I want to... Uh, I want to make sure that we're not culturally myopic here and simply assume that anything that we say about the spiritual realm is just imaginary or simply assume that the supernatural is impossible. I mean, there are great strengths to our modern worldview. There's a lot of questions that it can answer, but I think there's also some things that the modern worldview is not able to answer or answer very adequately, and so I want to be open to what this ancient worldview has to say to us. So, of course, my bias here at Alpine Church is that we do believe the spiritual world does exist. We do believe that God can and does act within human history and human experience. And if you're not sure about that in your life today, that's totally okay. We're glad you're here. We hope that we can at least explore some possibilities together about that. And and at very least, I hope that there may be some wisdom from some of these ancient stories that speaks to you and where you're at in your life, even if you're not ready to adopt the whole worldview that we're operating from. So I just say that to get that out on on the table, just to get that up front, because we are talking about some things that, um, that partake directly of that worldview. Now today, we're going to look at at this story, we call it Balaam and the Donkey. If you did grow up in Sunday school, you probably remember this story because it's quite memorable because it features a talking animal, okay, a talking donkey, okay, I think of Shrek, right? That's the first thing I think of is is Shrek, or I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, right, where there's talking animals. Now those, um, this, this is something different from that today, but part of this story, one small element of this story is that Balaam's donkey, talks to him, and they have a conversation together, okay? So the fact is there's a lesson embedded in that conversation. We'll look at that in a minute and try to look at it in light of this bigger context. But this guy Balaam, his story is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25 mainly, but that's not where we start. I want to start in the New Testament by by looking at how he's referred to that in the New Testament to give us kind of a framing a perspective on who this guy is and a little bit about him. So we read about him in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 15. Now, he's speaking here. He's warning the readers about spiritual charlatans and um, false teachers is the language that the Bible uses a lot, who, who would want to lead you away from faith or to follow them for personal financial gain. And he says, These people have wandered off the right road. They followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. So according to this perspective, Balaam's not a good guy. In fact, he's an example of kind of people that, that we're warned to watch out for, to avoid, to be you know, discerning about, uh, who, who would seek to uh, twist the faith for their own benefit. And so what I want to do now is go back to Numbers 22 and look at the background of the story of Balaam to find out why he got that reputation um, decades later. So in Numbers 22... Here's how the story develops. The people of Israel traveled to the plains of Moab and camped east of the Jordan River across from Jericho. And when the people of Moab saw how many Israelites there were, they were terrified. So have you noticed how Utah kind of jacks up the whole thing about biblical geography? Like Moab is like not anywhere near the Jordan River in Utah, but, but it is, you know, in the real, in the real world of uh, the Bible. But the point is here, you can see that Israel is migrating from Egypt. They've been uh, enslaved there for many generations. God has brought uh, Moses to release them, to lead them out, and He's uh, leading them to this homeland that He promised to give them. And as they approach, they have to pass through the, the country of Moab first. The people of Moab saw how numerous they were, and they're afraid. Now, The historical record doesn't suggest that Israel had any intention of attacking Moab or conquering them or anything else. They were just trying to get through to to the land that God promised them. But if you saw that, you'd be afraid too probably because they were imagining how their lives might be disrupted by this huge population of, of migrants, these refugees that were passing through. And so The king of Moab thinks he better do something, right? So it says that Balak, the king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor. And here's what he says to him. He says, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they're too powerful for me then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people you bless, and curses fall on people you curse. So Balaam is known in that region, in that part of the world, then as a prophet or a seer, not entirely sure how that fits and how that all makes sense, Um, but he's known for having this resume of, you know, um, he blesses somebody, they get blessed. He, so, that, I guess that's a thing, you know, curse for hire. And so, Balaam, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, sends messengers to, to sign him up, and he offers him a contract to curse Is, the Israelites. He feels like, man, that's my only hope. These people are too numerous. They're too strong. Now, here's the bigger picture of something that's going on in the Bible at this point, that God has already blessed the people of Israel. It's going way back to the promises that he made to their forefather Abraham some 400 or so years before. And in fact, as they move into their new homeland across the Jordan River, that homeland itself is a culmination of blessing that God spoke to Abraham generations and generations before. And so God already determined to bless. He'd already set the blessings in motion. And so kind of what you see is there's going to see a little showdown here between God's blessing against Balaam's curse. Which one's going to prevail? How is that story going to work out? So let me share with you some things that we learn from this story. The first lesson I I want you to see as we get into the story is that God is fighting for our attention, and He's going to do whatever it takes to get it. For Balaam, it took a talking donkey. So Balaam took the job, and he starts out for Moab, and as he starts out, God has a message for him, and God's going to get through to him in this very unusual way. So I want you to understand today that God's trying to get through to you as well, and not just that he has some message for you, like I could give you a telegram from God, but much more than that, God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him and to know you, and he wants you to hear from him, and that might involve some particular message that he has that he wants you to hear. But more than that, it's about relationship that he wants to have with you. But in Balaam's case, he had this particular message about that situation as it played out, and we see that in Numbers chapter 22. So the next morning, Balaam got up, he saddled his donkey, started off with the Moabite officials, But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. And as Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. He beat the donkey. So God doesn't want Balaam to help the Moabites. So he sends his angel to block the way. By the way, angels in the Bible, they're not those sort of cuddly, chubby, little cherubic things that you see on the greeting cards. No, they're powerful messenger, emissary of God that, that would, is intimidating and, and awesome and holy. And so the angel can see the angel, uh, the donkey can see the angel up ahead. And so he says, man, I'm getting out of here. Balaam can't see the, the angel yet. So he doesn't understand why the donkey bolts off the road. And this happens three times. Until verse 28, then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. You now, this is really fun. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. Here's what struck me: is Balaam doesn't go what? Balaam just gets in an argument with him. He says, "You made me look like a fool." Balaam shouted, "If I had a sword with me, I'd kill you." But I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life," the donkey answered. "Have I ever done anything like this before?" No, Balaam admitted. What if your pet could suddenly speak to you? What would he, your pet, want to confront you about? I, I just that—that that was a thought I had. It's kind of irrelevant, but maybe your pet would say, "Look, how come you never take me for a walk? Or, or why do you give me that crappy-tasting dog food? Or whatever, you know?" But no. Somehow God gives this donkey the ability to speak. It's a very humorous and kind of crazy situation, but it really does grab your attention. It certainly grabbed Balaam's attention, but the the takeaway is in the next verse, in verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes... And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. And Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. Verse 35, then the angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So finally, Balaam's aware of the angel. And the message was, yeah, go ahead, go ahead to, the, to the king of Moab, but you're only going to say whatever God tells you to say, And so God used this very unusual method to get his message across to Balaam. And man, I can think of a million other ways God could have done that, right? This, like, uh, maybe less surprising or less uh, unaccountable ways that God could have spoke to to Balaam in a whole bunch of different ways, but he chose to do it like like this for some reason. I've never had a literal donkey talk to me. I've had some jackasses talk to me but never a literal donkey, right? No, but, but God has got my attention in various ways. Sometimes I'm reading the Bible. I'm just reading, reading in the Bible, and bam, something hits you, and you go, oh, and it's like conviction or awareness. You go like, man, I never knew that, or, or oh, man, I better, that, that's speaking right to me. Or sometimes it comes from listening to the input of others, even jackasses, sometimes even my enemies, even if they're only 2% right, that's 2% that I can hear, that God can use to get my attention. It could be speaking to me through wise people who love Jesus and, and they have something in, in, that I need to hear. Sometimes God gets our attention through hard times, through suffering and trials. Man, that's hard, that's tough, but, but that's what it takes sometimes to strip us down to where we're really willing, right, to listen to what he has to say. We're not self-sufficient anymore. Or sometimes it's just through that just really gentle nudge in your spirit, maybe sometimes when you're in prayer and these thoughts come that, that you didn't ask for, that didn't come from you, or this little, this little sense comes from God that impels you in a certain way. So God can get our attention in a lot of different ways. I suppose he could get it through a talking animal if he wanted to. But the point is that this calls, whenever God gets your attention, it's gonna call for a decision from us. It's a crossroads that Balaam faces here. Is he going to listen to what God has said? On one hand, here's this pile of money offered to him by the king of Moab to do something against God's people. And on the other hand, here's God's message to go and do something for God's people. What's Balaam going to do? And so here's the practical question that comes out of this, I think, for us. Is God trying to get your attention right now, and how far will he have to go? Is maybe there's a decision that God's placing in front of you that you, you need to understand what he wants you to do. Maybe he's trying to get you to respond to him. There's an opportunity he wishes you would say yes to. Or maybe he's trying to get you to understand some truth or some reality, or he's trying to open your eyes to this this greater truth that's going to shape the destiny of the rest of your life, whatever it might be. That's one thing to think about today. But we want to get into the story of Balaam, and and I want you to see where this whole story is going. And so the next thing that we see here is that God is sovereign, and He's always going to get His way. Balaam's prophecies, you see, only affirmed the blessings that God had already promised to Abraham. So remember, here's the big story that's taking shape. It's God's blessings against Balaam's curses. And we'll see here that God's blessings will always win, that God will always fulfill the promises that He makes to His people. And so that ultimately all Balaam could do was really just affirm the blessings that God had already promised to Abraham. And so I want to highlight four things that come up in these in this next two chapters in chapter 23 and 24. What happens is that the king of Moab takes Balaam, and the king's all prepared this whole thing, and he's got these seven hills, and he, at each hill he's prepared a, an offering to, to uh, give to the deities, and so in like a, it's like an um, incantation, that, a divination that Balaam is then going to speak these words of cursing and so forth. So he's got all these places set up, and so seven times Balaam speaks. Well, we're only going to look at, at some of those, and we're going to only look at excerpts of those. So I encourage you, you can go back and read that for yourself, the whole thing. But what we're going to see is that four times, at least out of the seven, then Balaam reflects and echoes words that God had already promised to Abraham and to Israel long in the past. And so let, let's start, Numbers 23... Balaam's standing on the top of the hillside, and he says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those whom the Lord has not condemned? Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? So he says, that this is kind of the theme, right? He says, man, I can't curse anybody that God's blessed. Who could, who could thwart God's blessing in anybody's life? And then he notes these people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, he sees them all out on the field on the... On the uh, plains below him, and he says, he noticed they're as numerous as dust. Well, if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, we don't really have time to do that today, but if you were to turn there, that's exactly what God said to Abraham back then. He said, I'm going to give you descendants that are so numerous, they'll be like the dust of the earth. So That's number one. Now, the king, of course, is really angry. He goes like, what? where's my curse? I paid for a curse. What are you doing? And, but, but Balaam keeps right on going here, in, in the, and down in verse 20, he says, Listen, I received a command to bless. God is blessed and cannot reverse it. No misfortune is in his plan for Jacob. No trouble is in store for Israel, for the Lord their God is with them. And this one reflects Genesis 17, where God said he's going to promise that he would always be with Abraham and his descendants. He said that hundreds of years before. Here's, here's the third one, Numbers uh, chapter 24. Balaam says, this is the message of one who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob! How lovely are your homes, O Israel! Now they're looking down. Again, the king and Balaam are looking down over Israel from the hilltop, and he can see their encampment below, and all the, these tents are laid out one after another after another. But Balaam also saw them, not just in their tents, but in their homes. See, in other words, soon they're not going to be nomads anymore. Soon they're going to establish their homes and their, fam, their farms and their fields in the promised land. And that echoes what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'm giving you and your descendants this land of their own to be their possession. That's where they're going to make their home. Now, let me, let me show you just one more. In uh, verse 17, Balaam says, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. Now, if you're reading through chapter, these, two, these chapters, you're gonna, you see that so far Balaam has always said them. He says, this is going to happen to them, or this is what I see about them. But now for the first time... He says, I see him, a future individual who arises out of Israel, and he says, whoever this person is is going to be a star, he's going, to, he's going to be a scepter. Now, I don't think Balaam really understood what he was prophesying. I don't think he understood the fulfillment. I don't think he understood how this correlated with the things that God had said to Israel uh, generations before. But this idea of a scepter arising out of Israel repeats a prophecy from Genesis chapter 49 that some roughly 500 years before, blessing had been declared over each of the 12 tribes of Israel that made up the nation of Israel, over each of the progenitors of those 12 tribes. Blessing had been declared and This is what was said there about Judah. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. You can see the parallels. Put those side by side up there so you can see the parallels between those. See, Judah was one of those tribes, and and this foretold that there'd be a line of kings that would come from them, and in fact, King David and Solomon and, and all the heirs of that royal lineage that sat on the throne were all of the tribe of Judah. But then more than that, He focuses the picture from many to one by identifying some single king who would one day arise, a king whom all the nations would honor, a king who actually owned the scepter, in other words, owned that kingly authority. Balaam is seeing the same thing that was seen by Israel, the, the forefather of the nation, generations and generations before, and as we look back on that from the perspective of the New Testament, we see that this is about Jesus, that Balaam, called by the Moabite king to curse Israel, in fact, foresees the coming of Israel's Messiah into the world. And see, as Christians, we can never really read the Old Testament without factoring Jesus in. Jesus is at the heart of that story. As we connect the dots, the dots are always going to lead in one way or another to him. So, Balaam, hired to curse Israel, all he could do was validate and reinforce the blessings and the promises that God had already made to his people long before. And that's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. It means, for example, that God's in charge, that God is going to win. But in this context it means that when God wants to do something or when God says He's going to do something that that can't be thwarted. You know that's good news for us. Because God's promises to you can never be broken. And nothing can derail God's purpose for your life or His destiny for you. Now That seems like maybe that's the end of the story. Balaam has failed in his commission to curse Israel, and the king of Moab is mad and Balaam goes home, but that's not the end of the story at all. Numbers chapter 25, Balaam somehow must have been determined to earn his paycheck, so we see the development of a plan B here. So I'm going to try to connect the dots for us a little bit and see this plan B that what happens next in the very next verses. See, the Israelites down there on the fields below, they had no idea what was happening up on the hillsides. They had no idea there was this spiritual battle taking place. They're just going about their life, going about their business, waiting for their opportunity to move into the promised land. But what we see next illustrates an interesting idea that we need to take into account that the enemy will never stop trying to curse God's people. Balaam couldn't do it through magic, so he did it through culture. And so let me tell you what I'm talking about. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, this is what happens right after Balaam leaves. The Israelites were camped. Some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices of their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. And in this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against His people. So the king of Moab here ends up getting what he wanted all along. He wanted Israel to be removed as a threat. But what Balaam could not do through the curses that he was supposed to deliver, the people did to themselves. They brought God's anger, they brought God's curse essentially upon themselves through this combination of sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, it'd be an interesting side study to show you all the different ways that those two things are coupled in the Old Testament and how they really went together in that culture. But but we don't have time to do that. Let's just ask this question. How does what we see on the screen there, how does that connect to Balaam? Well, the answer comes in Numbers chapter 31. It tells us that these, speaking back to the women in chapter 25, who enticed the Israelite men, invited them into idolatrous sacrifices, and so forth. These women, these are the very ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. They're the ones who caused the plague to strike God's people. And so apparently what happened is that Balaam couldn't curse God's people, so this is his plan B. He coached up the Moabites about how to bring Israel down by by playing to their own weaknesses, by enticing them to disregard God and to violate God's ways. That's his plan B, and apparently it worked. Because Jesus Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. In in um, In his words to the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus says, I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin." So here's what we got so far. God wants our attention, and He can use unorthodox and unexpected ways to get His message across to us. God always fulfills His promises, and nothing or nobody can thwart what God has said He's going to do for us. And then for many of us, this final point is the one that that might be the biggest lesson of all, that the values of the world around us can lead us away from God maybe even more effectively than a head-on attack. The culture of the world around us is increasingly foreign to God's ways. We know that. and Yet, we look around, it doesn't seem necessarily ugly or threatening. It doesn't really look demonic. In fact, much of it looks very attractive, very appealing. Those two things that sunk the Israelites the sexual immorality, the idolatry, uh, those are both still relevant today. So we have to say, what is a culture's message about sexual ethics and how does that compare to what God has given us, what God has told us? The culture's message is almost anything goes. Pornography doesn't hurt anybody. You can survive an extramarital affair. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody maybe even will know. There's no need to save sexual activity for the bond of marriage. In fact, our culture tells us that the idea of sexual purity before marriage is at best naive and at worst a toxic idea. There's so much more we could say about about that topic itself. But there's more. I want to talk about idolatry for a second. That's still an issue today. Not that people are carving like little images and and bowing down and worshiping them, but no, idolatry in the essence of it could be anything that puts something else above God in our life. That was something else that we turn to for significance and meaning and hope in our life. And what the message of our culture to us today is that almost anything is more important than God. Our culture says, look, you're going to find your meaning, your significance, your identity, your worth, you're going to find it here or here or here or here or here, but you're not going to find it necessarily in God. God God's just another thing, and if you're naive enough, foolish enough to believe in God then at least don't be so stinking serious about it. And don't try to tell other people how to believe, right? But it's not just those two issues. I want want us to think about this whole, broad a little bit more broadly, this whole question. Let's think about other ways that the prevailing culture might infiltrate our thinking and our values in ways that could, could lure us away from being faithful to God. How about violence, for example? We live in a culture of violence, of gun violence, of domestic violence. We look at, what, look at what we entertain ourselves with, movies and TV programs that are filled with violence and filled with death, and we're going like, yeah, let's, watch, let's binge watch that. Or how about the video games that we play? A lot of them, we're participating in unrestrained killing of human beings, at least the images. Now, look, I know the difference between fantasy and reality, But my question is this, is that violence faithful to the ethic of Jesus? Would Jesus say, here, give me the game controller, let's go? Jesus is the one who told Peter, put away your sword. How about injustice? Does does the injustice of the world around us, does does our attitude toward justice, does that filter into our values? You can't read the Old Testament without seeing that God is a God of justice. And yet, I look at a lot of Christians today who don't seem to, the the justice issues seem to be pretty low on our priority, that we're not really bothered that court systems and and law enforcement practices in many places don't treat everybody the same. Is that that the ethic of, of Jesus? How about greed? Does the American culture of affluence and acquisition lead us toward God or lead us toward idolatry? Probably don't need to say anything more about that, right? How about gluttony? How about the way that people in our culture treat other people who disagree? Look, my point is not to make a checklist. My point is is I want us to think a little more critically, a little more intentionally about the values of the culture that we might unthinkingly adopt that could put us out of step with God. I want us to live with discernment. I want us to be careful about who or what we allow to influence us. And again, I don't want to make a list for you. That, that's not, the Christian life is not about lists. The Christian life is about a heart and how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. So I don't want to give you a list and say, you can't watch these TV programs or you can't listen to these voices. No, I want you to develop the capacity to think and discern who and what you're allowing to influence your life. If you have kids, right, that's that's what we want for our kids, right? We'll try to to coach our kids to be able to make those decisions, to be able to have that discernment. How come we're not willing to set wise boundaries for ourselves then? And so as we close, I want you to think about this question. Who are the Balaams of our generation and how are they trying to, to trip us up? You know, I think that's worth talking about with some other people, right? Talk about it at home. I think that'd be a great conversation to have with a mentor. There's so many answers to that that, that we could debate about a little bit in a small group setting. We could say, well, no, what about this or what about this? And, and so that's, again, why we're encouraging you to test drive a small group this month to process together with other people what you're hearing on Sunday. And you you're more than welcome to go in your small group and decide that, that I'm out to lunch, or you can decide ways that things I've shared with you make sense. But hopefully we'll be able to help each other spot some of those danger zones, spot some of the positive things we want to pursue that might help us to experience God's blessing and God's promises in our life. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you want to speak into our lives. You want to get our attention Right now, God, we're listening. We're listening to you. Make our hearts open. Give us eyes to see. To see first of all, God, help us to hear your message that you love us unconditionally in Jesus. Help us to hear that message today. And Father, I pray that we would, each one of us would come to trust and embrace your promises and your blessings for our lives. And, Father, I pray that each one of us would become discerning, that we wouldn't just listen to whatever voices are out there, from social media influencers or from television or from politics or from wherever, whatever voices that we've allowed to be louder than, than your word in our lives. So help us today. We're just humbled before you right now. We just want to ask you to work and move in us and do what we can't do, and give us, God, what we don't deserve, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, at Alpine, our custom is on the first Sunday of the month to receive what the Bible calls communion or the Lord's Supper. And so that's why we have these little packets. These are the sort of COVID-safe way of doing communion. If you don't have one, you're going to participate with us. And raise your hand or us just will bring one by. Hope you have one. Let me just explain very briefly what this is. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he had his last supper with his followers. He took bread, passed it around. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he passed around a cup and he said, I want you all to drink from this because this cup represents a new covenant with God that's ratified by my blood for the forgiveness of sins. He's thinking about his death on the cross. He shed his blood on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. and we can enter into a relationship with God. So ultimately, ultimately this reminds us big, big question, a big, big issue in life and in the Christian life. We talked about getting it right today. We talked about being discerning. We talked about you know, moving forward in the right direction. Here's the big question: What happens when we fail? what happens when we fail? Because we will. The biblical answer, the answer of the gospel, the good news is that when we fail, Jesus has succeeded. When we're not worthy, Jesus is worthy. He's always worthy. He went to the cross to take the penalty of our sins upon Himself so that we can be right with God. And so we have a reset every single day. We have a reset every moment of every day as long as we need it, to say, God, I messed up. I didn't measure up. I own that. I admit that. And now I accept your grace for me. I accept the payment Jesus made on the cross for me. And I remembered I'm going to go forward with you. And so Jesus, knowing that we're tangible beings, he gave us a tangible way to remember that by eating the bread, by drinking the cup. And so I'd want to invite you, if you're a Christ follower, if these elements represent your relationship with Jesus, then as we go into worship, I'm going to invite you, when you're ready, as we meditate on what God might be speaking to you today, as you meditate on what Jesus has done for you, when you're ready, just peel back the layers, take the bread, drink the cup in remembrance of Him. Let's worship.